According to my dad, there used to be these strange things called vinyl records. They look like flying saucers. If you spin them and a needle hovers over its grooves, apparently music comes out. Strange. Now, at the height of their popularity, the band The Beatles came under scrutiny for their records. Supposedly, if you played their records backwards, you would find a new surprising significance for their songs. And that new significance wouldn't always be good. Now, I wonder if you know that you can do the same thing with the Bible. You can read it backwards and you can find a new significance. Though it's not bad, it's good. Now, I don't mean that you read the Bible backwards in terms of its words. That would turn out very weird. If you started at the end of Revelation, you'd get something like, Amen, all with be Jesus, Lord of the grace of thee. You would not get very far. No, what I mean is that you can read the Bible backwards in terms of its people and its situations. You see, often the case is when you and I read the Bible, when we read the words on the page, the first thing we do is that we jump immediately forward and we ask, all right, what does this mean for me and my life? That's not a bad instinct. But if you jump forward too quickly, you risk distorting the biblical text. You risk really seeing only what you want to see. And you risk losing the real significance of the biblical text because you didn't start by going backwards. Now, when we start by going backwards, we remember that while the Bible is written for you and me, it was originally written about other people and originally written to other people. So instead of reading the words on the page and jumping immediately forward and asking, what does this mean for me and my life? We read the words on the page and then go backwards and ask, all right, why was this written in the first place? Oh, my friend, if you do that, the Bible will have a new significance to you and it will take on a new meaning for you. You'll see, you'll see things that you didn't see before. Starting by going backwards is crucial to understand the passage of the Bible we're in today. Numbers 15 through 19. Because if you read those chapters and you immediately go forward and you ask, what does this mean for me in my life? You are going to be really confused. Because <laughs> all you're going to find are a seemingly random assortment of laws and instructions and you really won't know how to apply them to your life. But if you start by going backwards, remembering the original situation and the original audience and the original people this book is about, well, then you'll start to make sense and you'll see a, the true significance of this passage. If you start by going backwards, I think you'll see this significance from Numbers 15 and 19. It's printed on the back of your bulletin. I think this is the main point of these chapters. That despite the people's sin, God keeps his promise and provides a way for them to be restored to him. All right, let's practice what we just preached, okay? Let's start Numbers 15 and 19 by going backwards. So we remember the people that this book is originally about. What was their situation? Well, if you were with us last week, we saw in Numbers chapters 13 and 14, the people approached the edge of the promised land. This is the place that they had longed for for a long time. And they sent, before they go in, they send 12 spies into this land and they come back and give them a report. 
The kids just talked about this, right? Ten of the spies say the land's good, but the people there are like NFL linebackers. Let's not go in. Two of the spies said, yeah, the land's great. Let's do it. They listened to the majority of the spies. They refused to go into the land. And instead, they're like, you know what? Let's just make a beeline back to Egypt. So what does God do? In response, God just says, all right, I'm going to give you what you want. You're going to, this current generation is going to spend the next 40 years in the wilderness. And this, everybody 20 years old and older is going to die in the wilderness. You'll get exactly what you want. Now, when the people hear this from God, they are distraught. And all of a sudden, they change their tune. And they kind of fake repentance. They say, oh, well, well, now we're ready to do what we were supposed to do in the first place. Let's just go in. And Moses warns them, don't do it. And they do it anyway. And when they go in, it doesn't work. They get booted out of the land. and They're chased out. So the last words we read in Numbers 14 are like this. Then the Amalekites and the Canaanites who lived in that hill country came down and defeated them and pursued them even to Hormah. This is where they are. This is where the people who this book is about, this is where they are. They are defeated. They are chased down. We have to remember this backwards look as we come to Numbers chapter 15. Because now a big question mark hangs over God's people and even God's plan at the beginning of Numbers 15. We're left to wonder, how is this all going to turn out? Will it turn out or is it just going to sort of sputter out? Chapters 15 through 19 give us the answer. On the whole, the big answer that these chapters give us is what we said already, that despite the people's sin, God keeps his promise and provides a way for them to be restored to him. You're going to see that big answer only if you go backwards and remember the situation this, uh, these chapters address. Now, when I read through Numbers 15 through 19, it reminded me about how Romans 5 verse 20 describes God's plan, God's plan that culminates in Jesus. The verse says, where sin increased, grace abounded all the more. So I think the flow of these chapters looks like this. In Numbers 15, God's grace abounds. But then in Numbers 16 through 17, the people's sin abounds. And then in Numbers 18 through 19, God's grace abounds even more. So if you're not there yet, please turn with me to Numbers chapter 15. You'll find the page number on the screen behind me. And when you're there, I just want you to let your eyes scan over the entire chapter. Now, if you're looking at the Bibles provided, and even most Bibles, you'll see these sort of italicized headings over, the, over certain sections. Now, those aren't originally part of the original text of the Bible, but they're, they're placed there to help us, and they are helpful guides. So according to those headings, what is in Numbers 15? Well, let's, let's just take a look. According to those headings, first, this chapter talks about laws concerning sacrifices. Now, we usually think of sacrifices in terms of it covers something wrong that somebody did. And yeah, that's the main type of sacrifice, but there are other kinds of sacrifices, and that's what this chapter starts off with. There are sacrifices for thanking God. There are sacrifices for dedicating yourself to God. There are sacrifices for celebrating who God is and what he has done. 
This first part of Numbers 15 deals with those kinds of sacrifices. And it gives special instructions to tell us the certain kind of elements that should accompany those kinds of sacrifices. It says elements like wine, a certain kind of flour and oil, and elements like dough. We're going to come back to these in a minute. Let's just keep going through Numbers 15. What, what's the next heading there? In verse 22, this chapter talks about unintentional sins. Now, this is more than just stuff that you do on accident. This is stuff that you recognize and then repent of. This section talks more about the sacrifices you and I are familiar with. So it'll talk about the, a sin offering. This offering emphasizes the blood of an animal. And the blood symbolizes the cleansing and removal of sin. And then there is also talks about the burnt offering. The burnt offerings where you would burn the whole animal being sacrificed on the altar. That's meant to symbolize that for the person making the sacrifice, they are now dedicating their whole lives to God. All right, that, that's this section. And at the end of this section about unintentional sins, in verse 30, it talks about sinning with a high hand. Now, just as unintentional sins are more than just sins you do on accident, sinning with a high hand is more than just sins you do on purpose. To sin with a high hand is to functionally say, I utterly reject God and his relationship with us. It's to say, I don't believe in any of this stuff. I'm going to do things my way and I don't care what happens. Well, then we get an example of sinning with a high hand in the next section, which talks about someone who breaks the Sabbath. It's probably the next heading in your uh, Numbers 15. Now, resting on the Sabbath day was a big deal for Israel because this was the main way that God shows his relationship with them. This is the main way he shows his relationship with them because it was the main day that they set aside to remember him. Now, keep in mind that if we read the Bible up to this point, instructions about keeping the Sabbath were already given. Warnings about violating the Sabbath were also already given. So apparently this guy here, Numbers 15, he doesn't care. He's going to do his own thing anyway. It says he gathers sticks on the Sabbath. Now, it seems kind of strange, but what do you do with sticks with a bunch of them? Probably build a fire. It's probably what this guy was doing. So just, just think about it. If, if you have the big, a big fire in the middle of the camp of Israel, then a lot of people would see it, and potentially a lot of people would be led astray by it. And so the warnings about violating the Sabbath come to fruition. This man is put to death. This is a really sobering passage. It would remind Israel of the bigness of sin and even the wages of sin. And we read a passage like this, it's, it's, it's meant to be hard, but if you are surprised that someone would be put to death for their rebellion against God, if you think, well, this is just one of those brutal Old Testament things, well, I wonder how you make sense of the cross of Jesus Christ, who Jesus died for our rebellion against God. So we're, we're going through chapter, Numbers 15, just looking at the headings. The last heading in this chapter comes in verse 37 and talks about tassels on their garments. This is more than just the latest fashion trend in Israel. These were meant to be reminders. This blue cord on the tassels of their garments, this is something that Jesus would have worn as well. They would remind the Israelites of their status as being set apart for the Lord. Blue was the color of royalty. It was the predominant color in the high priest's garments. It was the color of the cloth that they wrapped the Ark of the Covenant in. 
This blue tassel would remind the Israelites that they are God's royal children. So here we have all of Numbers 15. If you just read it and then jumped immediately forward, especially if you isolated this chapter from the rest of the book, boy, you would be really confused (laughs) because it just seems like a random assortment of material, doesn't it? But if you read Numbers 15 and start by going backwards, you will see its significance. If you remember the big question mark that hangs over God's people at at this point, the uncertainty of what's going to happen next to God's people, then if you do that first, then Numbers 15 verse 2 will stand out to you. Follow along as I read. Numbers 15 verses 1 to 2. The Lord spoke to Moses saying, speak to the people of Israel and say to them, notice here, when you come into the land, you are to inhabit which I am giving you. So hold on just a second. The Israelites have just failed, right? The Israelites have just refused the land. They just told God, basically, God, we would rather die than to trust you. They just told God, you know, God, we prefer the land of slavery more than the land of promise. And and God gives them what they want. God declares, you know what, this generation is not going to enter the land. And to add to that, here they are. They are freshly defeated. They are freshly pushed back by an opposing force. And now, what does God say? When you come into the land, God says, this is still going to happen. It might not be this generation, but God says, I am still bringing my people into this land. I am still keeping my promise. God says, you know what? My people may have left me, but I am not leaving them. Numbers 15 is God's declaration to restore his wayward people. And so don't you see, this brings this chapter into an entire new light. Now, the sacrifices in Numbers 15, they aren't just random. They're actually closely connected with the promised land. So one of the elements that Numbers 15 talks about is the wine. Why? What gives with that? Well, remember, what what produce did the spies bring back in chapter 13? They brought back grapes, wine grapes. So all of the elements in Numbers 15, they would uniquely find in the promised land, in abundance, Chapters, chapter Numbers 15 is God's declaration to restore his wayward people. When you keep that in mind, the rest of the chapter all of a sudden makes sense. Now, the, the, this talk about unintentional sins reminds the people that not every sin is going to cost us the promised land. It reminds the people that God is gracious and forgiving. There is going to be continued hope for us to be restored and to repent. And we shouldn't spurn that hope for us to be restored and to repent like the man who broke the Sabbath uh, spurned it. No, we should remember that hope. This is why the tassels are given, for them to remember. In fact, Numbers 15, verse 39, a lot of commentators on this passage point this out. The, The curious way God gives this instruction. Look at Numbers 15, 39. It says, it shall be a tassel for you to look at and remember all the commandments of the Lord to do them, not to follow after your own heart and your own eyes, which you are inclined to whore after. So when God says, don't follow your own heart, not only is that like the anti-Disney channel verse, (laughs) that verb follow after 
is actually the same verb that's translated as spy out in Numbers 13. A little bit of irony here. It's like God saying, you know, remember when your spies went into the land? They spied it out and they followed their own hearts. They followed their own whims. They followed their own thoughts. And when you look at these tassels, you remember to spy out me. To remember who I am. To remember how I delivered you. To remember my good ways. And you see me not with the eyes of your heart, but with the eyes of your faith. So here we are. Numbers 15 declares that God's grace endures. Numbers 15 declares that God's promise endures and that God's people can be restored. Now, we'll talk about this more a little bit later. But Numbers 15 can begin to correct your natural thoughts about what you think about God. Numbers 15 can begin to correct just how you think about God naturally. Those thoughts that Satan seizes and reinforces. See, I bet before you sin, you're a lot like me. And you think this about God. You think, hmm, God doesn't really care about this. It's not that big of a deal. God's just going to love me anyway. But then after you sin, I bet you're like me and you think this about God. God will never take back a failure like me. Why would he? You see, in both cases, wrong thoughts about God keep you far from God. Chapter 15 corrects both of those thoughts. God does take sin seriously, but God also restores sinners. Numbers 15 declares that God's grace endures, that God's promise endures, that God's people can be restored. Just one more application on this. I think Numbers 15 is is something unique for parents and for people who invest in the next generation. Think about this. Who's Numbers 15 for? What are the instructions of this chapter? Who are they meant for? Who will get to live them out? The current generation is not going to get to go into the land. So Numbers 15 is really for all the people who are 20 years old and younger. And yet, the current generation still gets to hear Numbers 15. So the current generation might not get to be in the land. But you know what they can do? They can model for their kids. They can model for the next generation. Here's what it looks like to repent and to be restored to God. Parents, kids, people who invest in the next generation, maybe you feel like you've blown it and you've made a mess of your life. But here's the opportunity that God gives you. Here's God's grace to you. You can model for the next generation. You can model for your kids what it looks like to repent and to be restored to God. Boy, that will prepare them well for life. This is so crucial to your parenting. This is crucial to your discipleship of the next generation. Let kids see you model repentance. Let them see you own your sin, to confess it, to ask for forgiveness. Let them see you go back to God and be joyfully restored. Kids in the room, it's our prayer that you see that in us and in the the generation that's older than you. So chapter 15 ends, and it ends with an echo of God's enduring grace and God's enduring promise. Then chapter 16 and 17 begin. And they first strike a minor note that echoes the people's enduring sin and enduring rebellion. This is our second point. Sin abounds. 
Now, apparently the tassels don't work for a lot of the people in Israel. In chapters 16 and 17, there are three rebellions against God and his chosen leaders. And subsequently, there are three vindications of God and his chosen leaders. Let's just go over and look at those, all of chapter 16 and 17. Chapter 16, verse 1, we're told who leads the first two rebellions here. They're led by Korah, who's from the tribe of Levi. And they're also led by Dathan and Abiram, who are from the tribe of Reuben. Now, along with them, it says, are 250 well-respected, influential figures in Israel. All these guys get lumped together, but really they have two different complaints. The first complaint comes from Korah in number 16, verse 3. It says, they assembled themselves together against Moses and against Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. For all in the congregation are holy, every one of them, and the Lord is among them. Why then do you exalt yourselves above the assembly of the Lord? Now you read that and on the surface, it sounds okay. It's like Korah is saying, hey, Moses, according to your word, the Bible you are helping to write, God saved all of us. Now, I remember something that you wrote down, Moses. I remember that you told us that God said he means for us to be a kingdom of priests. So Moses, tell me, if that's true, who are you to say that you're better than us? Well, I'm not the first to observe that the most dangerous lies are the ones that have partial truths in them. Right, so what Korah says is partially true. Yeah, it's true. Everyone in Israel was holy and set apart for the Lord. The tassels reminded them of that. But it wasn't true that Moses and Aaron exalted themselves above everybody. No, it it was God who did that, not them. And if you skip down in Numbers 16 to verse 11, you'll see the true heart of Korah's complaint. Moses says, it is against the Lord that you and all your company have gathered together. What is Aaron that you grumble against him? Talked about this a couple weeks ago. If you put Korah's complaint under a microscope, you're going to see the same elements that we saw in other complaints and numbers. You put Korah's complaint under a microscope and you are going to see a rewritten version of history and you're going to see a blindness to God's grace. You know, Korah conveniently leaves out of his version of history the many times that God has separated Moses and Aaron from the rest of the bunch. Not just that. Korah is completely disregards and is completely blinded to God's grace to him. That's what Moses tells him starting in verse 9. Moses points this out to him. You see, Korah belonged to the Kohathites, and the Kohathites were one of three divisions in the tribe of Levi. The Kohathites were the guys who got to handle the most precious items in the tabernacle. That's why Moses asked Korah in verse 9, Is it too small a thing for you, Korah, that the God of Israel has separated you from the congregation of Israel to bring you near to himself, to do service in the tabernacle of the Lord, and to stand before the congregation to minister to them, and that he has brought you near him and all your brothers and sons of Levi with you? I think Korah is a lot like us. You know, when we forget and are blinded to God's grace, is everything just looms way larger. God's grace helps put our complaints in perspective. Listen, I'm going to say again in a moment, it's not that you can never voice concerns about church. No, but I bet a lot of those concerns would be put into perspective when you remember that you shouldn't even be here right now. None of us should be. 
that if left to ourselves, we would be on the road to hell. If you remembered God's grace to you, a lot of things would just get smaller. Same thing worked for Korah. But then I want you to see the end of verse 10. This question that Moses asks Korah. Moses sees right through him. He asks him, would you seek the priesthood also? Oh, Moses knows. Moses knows. Moses knows that Korah doesn't really care that him and Aaron are in charge. You know what Korah cares about? That he's not in charge. (laughs) That's what he cares about. That's the heart of it. We talked about this on Wednesday night at Community Group. We were going through Ephesians 4. We were saying how our humility is essential to maintain our church's uh, unity. Humility essential for unity. So a couple of people shared stories about, you know, someone saw somebody leave a church because they didn't like how someone sang. Or someone left a church because uh, they asked the pastor, uh, will my parakeet go to heaven? And she didn't like the answer he gave her. Listen, are there to- again, are there times to voice concerns? Are there times to leave a church? Yeah, there are. But most of the time, complaints and division are a lot like chorus. They happen when me comes before we. Complaints and division, especially in church, happen when my preference comes before our unity. Again, it's the same thing worked for Korah. Me came before we. And it's not to say either that leaders should never be challenged or held accountable. But as someone else in our group aptly pointed out, a lot of complaints and division in church boil down to someone wanting power that they don't have. That's how it worked for Korah. Now, besides Korah, there are other people who complain. They're from the tribe of Reuben, though. We hear their complaint in verses 12 to 14 from chapter 16. The guys from Reuben complain that Moses shouldn't be in charge because Moses is a failure. The guys from Reuben say, you know what? We, had a, we actually had a good thing going on. Here is Moses. He's telling us, I'm going to lead you guys to a land flowing with milk and honey. But guess what? We were in a land flowing with milk and honey. And now it's Moses's fault that we're out here and we're going to die in the wilderness. That's what these guys are saying. You talk about a very conveniently rewritten version of history. Now, if you remember the, the storyline of the Bible, Reuben was the firstborn of Israel. But Reuben lost his birthright with the whole Joseph debacle when his brothers sold Joseph into slavery. So we might imagine these guys from Reuben saying like, hey, here's our chance. We can reclaim what our forefather lost. We might imagine them telling the rest of the Israelites, hey, look at where this old geezer Moses, who is 80 years old, has gotten you. It's time for the firstborn to retake his rightful place. So after these two rebellions, God shows up and vindicates Moses and Aaron. Moses says, you know, everybody take a censer. A censer is like this ball filled with smoke that the priests use as they entered the tabernacle. Moses says, everybody take a censer. All you guys who are complaining, take a censer and go toward the tabernacles. Like Moses is saying, all right, you guys want to act like priests? Let's see what happens when you do act like priests. So when someone attempts to approach God in an unauthorized manner, disaster ensues. That's what happens to Aaron's sons, Nadab and Abihu, back in Leviticus. That's what happens here. We've used the word backwards a lot today. Just as a little aside, 
Right here, the fears of Korah and the, fear, the fears of Korah and his crew are backwards. Their fears are backwards. They feared the people in Canaan too much and then refused to go into the land. Now, they don't fear the Lord enough and they presume to go into his presence. Now, everybody who sides with Korah, it says in verses 31 and 32, is swallowed up in the crowd. And fire consumes those who have the censers. Now, just as a note of clarification, later on in Numbers and later on in the Bible, it actually says that there are surviving sons of Korah. So it seems like not even all of Korah's family sides with him. But anyway, after all this happens, they take the censers of those who rebelled and they put them together and they make a new covering for the altar. And God tells them, let this covering remind you that you approach me only through my authorized priest. All this happens. This crazy stuff happens. And yet look at chapter 16, verse 41. People still don't get it. There is a third rebellion. Everyone now tells Moses and Aaron, guys, this is your fault that this has all happened. And now when they say that a plague starts to break out and the plague stops, it's ironic. It stops when Aaron, who's the guy they hate, intercedes for them. It's what a whirlwind of events that brings us to the beginning of chapter 17. And God vindicates Aaron one more time. And this time how he does it is his idea. God tells Moses, okay, I want you to get leaders from each tribe of Israel. Tell them to bring their staff. And when they all come together, let them write their, the name of their tribe on their staff. And then let Aaron represent Levi. You take all these staffs, you put them in the tabernacle, go to bed, come back tomorrow. And then whatever staff has sprouted with life, that's the guy I have chosen. So Moses does it. He gets the staffs. He puts them in the tabernacle. He goes to bed. He comes back the next day. And whose staff has sprouted with life? It's Aaron's. And it says it's budded with flowers. And it said it's budded with ripe almonds. It's kind of a curious detail. But you remember that the lampstand in the tabernacle that was always meant to be shining, it represents the light of God's presence. That lampstand is in the shape of an almond tree. And so I think it's as if God is communicating that the way y'all are going to enjoy the light of my presence is through the priesthood of Aaron. God intends for this vindication to put an end to all the grumbling. Now, this is a really special indication. and I want you to see something really important and unique about it. If someone else pointed this out to me, I, I really want you to see it. I want to share with you. Figure, how does God vindicate Aaron? Well, God brings life out of a piece of dead wood. He brings life out of a piece of dead wood. Now, later on in the Bible, there will be another figure who is rebelled against. Someone named Jesus, whose own family tells him that you are crazy and a lunatic and out of your mind. Jesus, where all of the well-respected, influential religious figures are going around telling everybody that this guy is possessed with a demon. And then it all culminates with this sort of mob that gathers together and says, set free the terrorists and let's kill Jesus. And that's what happens. 
how does God vindicate this great high priest? He brings life out of death. The same way he vindicates here in number 17. Peter says in Acts chapter 2, Men of Israel, hear these words. Jesus of Nazareth, a man attested to you by God with mighty works and wonders and signs that God did through him in your midst, as you yourselves know. This Jesus delivered up according to the definite plan and foreknowledge of God. You crucified and killed by the hands of lawless men. God raised him up, loosing the pangs of death because it was not possible for him to be held by it. Brothers and sisters, let us praise our rejected but vindicated great high priest. My friend, if you don't trust and follow Jesus, it's so good to have you this morning. I'm gonna humbly submit to you that there is nobody else who has been vindicated like this, who has been vindicated like Jesus has. My friend, don't presume to enter God's presence without trusting Jesus, the high priest, to go in your place. Trust Jesus, the one who was swallowed up by death for our rebellion. Trust Jesus, the one who was vindicated, brought back to life by his resurrection. Trust Jesus, don't follow your own heart and enjoy the light of God's presence. So how do the Israelites react to God vindicating Aaron in this way? We'll look at the end of chapter 17. Look at chapter 17, verses 12 and 13. The people of Israel said to Moses, Behold, we perish. We are undone. We are all undone. Everyone who comes near, who comes near to the tabernacle of the Lord shall die. Are we all to perish? August 21st, 2017 was the last total solar eclipse that was visible in America. Maybe you remember, maybe you were among the millions of onlookers at this rare event where the moon passes right between the earth and the sun, obscuring the sun's view. Now, you might remember at that time, there were a lot of businesses that sold these special glasses so that you could look at the eclipse. If you're like me, it's like, what gives, right? Like, this, you're not supposed to see the sun anyway. Why can't I just look directly at it? I'm going to be fine. Well, no, you wouldn't be fine, <laughs> Even NASA's website says it is never safe to look directly at the sun's rays, even if the sun is partly obscured. The Israelites, just like us, had assumed that it is safe to look directly at the one who made the sun. And at the end of, the, at the end of chapter 17, they finally realized, oh no, it is not safe to look directly at him. They realized that their sin against God has separated them from God and made closeness to God dangerous. My friend, until you realize that, God's grace won't make sense. And the good news is that as soon as they realize this, God graciously addresses it. This is what we see in chapters 18 and 19. Their sin had abounded And yet again, God's grace abounds even more. In the midst of their dilemma that they can't come near the Lord, God comes near them. God graciously provides the priesthood in chapter 18, and he graciously provides sacrifices so that they could be pure in chapter 19. 
The priesthood and sacrifices, these are like the special glasses through which they can look directly at the Lord and live. So how could the Israelites go near the Lord and not die? How could that happen and there not be another plague like there just was? Well, chapter 18 starts off by saying, this can happen only if someone goes in your place. Chapter 18, verse one says, the Lord said to Aaron, you and your sons and your father's house with you shall bear iniquity connected with the sanctuary and you and your sons with you shall bear iniquity connected with your priesthood. The priest's job was to represent the people to God. The sins that separated the people from God would be transferred to the priest and the priest would make atonement payment for their sin. The priest then act as a buffer between them and God. This is how God will continue to dwell with them in peace through the priests. The chapter continues. God says this work is so vital. This work is too important just to be done haphazardly. He says this work is too important that it it requires full concentration. And if the priests are to concentrate fully on this work, then the rest of the Israelites need to support them so that they can do the work full time. That's what chapter 18 talks about. Now, we've clarified a couple weeks ago that the job that the priests do here is different than the job that pastors do now. Now we have one great high priest who stands between us and God, who has made atonement for our sin. Through Jesus, we can now dwell with God in peace. Now our high priest is in place. Pastors make sure that nothing else stands between you and God besides Jesus. But the New Testament, when it talks about the work of the pastor, it still says it is crucial and vitally important. Pastors oversee a church's fellowship with God, a, a, their, a church's purity before God. While the New Testament gives exceptions, they say, especially for pastors who are set aside for teaching and preaching, it says this work requires full concentration. And if it requires full concentration, then the church should aim to support the pastor so they can do their work full time. Friends, I wouldn't be saying it unless the text provided it. And I'm not saying this to say, give, give me more money. no. I'm saying it to say thank you. I'm saying it to say thank you so much for supporting me and my family so that I can concentrate on this work full time and do the work with excellence with God's help. And I don't I don't plan to go anywhere else. But let me just tell you, if you if you happen to outlast me or if I or if you ever get a new lead pastor who you set aside for preaching and teaching, please support him so he can uh, do the work full time and concentrate on it. All right, so back to the story. How do God's people go near him and not die? God provides the priests in chapter 18. And God will provide sacrifices in chapter 19. It's a little build up there. You remember the Garden of Eden, beginning of Genesis. Adam and Eve sin against God. God boots them out of the garden. And then what does God do with the garden? He puts a cherubim outside of it and then a flaming sword in the ground guarding the entrance of it. It's as if to communicate, if you try to come back into the place of my presence, the sword will fall on you. So here are the priests. They uh, represent the people of God. They make atonement for their sin. But, But does the sword fall on the priests? No, the sword falls on the animals that they sacrifice. And that's how they can go in. So that's what chapter 19 talks about, a sacrifice. And chapter 19 uh, is God's gracious provision. And and it's important to read this chapter backwards as well. 
You remember a plague just happened. So it's likely that they would come into contact with a lot of dead bodies. Be an eerie time to live in Israel. So with a recent plague, coming into contact with death means that you cannot be near the place where the God of life dwells. So how do you get cleansed from contact with death? Well, enter this sacrifice that God tells them in chapter 19. He he details a procedure of burning a red cow, red emphasizing the tie to blood, mixing its ashes with water, then sprinkling that mixture on a person, separating that person for a week, and then that person can be restored and they're cleansed. It sounds really weird, doesn't it? We read something like that, we conclude that this is just this foreign, out-of-date way of relating to God. Let me tell you, we, we might not have priests and sacrifices like these, but we still relate to God through priests and through sacrifice. It's just one priest and one sacrifice. Jesus is the priest who is also the sacrifice. That's what Hebrews talks about over and over again. Jesus represents us before God and the sword fell on him so that we can go into God's presence. The veil split from top to bottom right when Jesus died. Jesus' blood cleanses us from sin and death and now we can be near God and not die for those who trust in Jesus. So we step back, we look at the whole of Numbers 15 through 19. I think we see Romans 5, 20 come to life. That where sin abounds, God's grace abounds even more. Where their sin abounds again, God's grace abounds again. And maybe a good note to end on is a little clarification. I don't want you to misunderstand. God's enduring grace isn't meant you to give you an enduring license to sin. God's enduring grace is meant to give you an enduring invitation to return. We should be continually wooed back to come to return to God by his goodness. What does the Lord say? My patience is meant to lead you to repentance. The author of Hebrews puts it like this. We read earlier, if the blood of bulls and goats and the, sprinkling of defiled pers- and the sprinkling of defiled persons with the ashes of a heifer sanctify for the purification of the flesh. How much more will the blood of Christ, who through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, purify our conscience from dead works? Why? To serve the living God. So here's the clarification. Christian, be wooed to return to God by his grace. Return to the gracious God who loves you, loves you so much that he gave his only son so that he might have peace with you. And return not to have license to sin against him, but return to have the freedom to serve him. Friends, let's pray. Rock of ages cleft for us. Let us hide ourselves in you. Let the water and the blood from your wounded side which flowed be of sin and the double cure. Let us save us from your wrath and let it make us pure. God, help us to think right thoughts about you so that we stay close to you. And God, be faithful. Thank you for your faithfulness. That for those who trust in Jesus, 
We stay connected to you and you promise to bring us back. We would be undone without it. Woo us back to you by your grace, by your enduring grace. We pray in Jesus' name, amen.